Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember that our materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode. So whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Anthony Lowe and with me is Marika Hart and we've got Susan Clinton. She's a physical therapist from Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh um, at Embody Physiotherapy and Wellness. How are you, Susan? Welcome to the show. I'm good. Good morning from my end. Good evening to Marika. (laughs) (laughs) So nice to have you here, Susan. I know that um, Antony and I have both interviewed on separate occasions for various Mm -hmm. things and have found you such an incredible font of knowledge. Um, I think we could probably pick your brains for hours. Um, But we were really interested to talk to you today about um, intra-abdominal pressure, intra-thoracic pressure, and really kind of take it back to the absolute basics, uh, because I think it's something that maybe we get a little bit confused about um, and maybe Mm -hmm. throw around terms and we don't maybe necessarily know exactly what we're referring to. So um, without further ado, should we just jump straight in? Are you happy with that? Sounds good to me. Awesome. Awesome. So um, can you tell us in, in your view or from your reading and research, what is intra-abdominal pressure? So what we have to consider is that the entire internal cavity of body is a pressure system. And we have valves that go in between those various pressure systems. So the diaphragm is probably the biggest one most people are familiar with. And it's a muscle that sits between the thorax, where our ribs are and our lungs are, and our abdominal cavity, which is our, where our liver and stomach and GI tract and all of that kind of business live. And the um, pressures in the thorax um, are governed by air coming in and air going out and the tension of the ribs and the muscles around there to allow that to happen. The pressures in the abdomen are a little bit more constant and a little bit more low pressure because they are um, inside of a sac. So it's like a water balloon. And water is neither compressible, you know, it, it just, it's not compressible. So if you push on it, it moves all around. And so we have a kind of a situation where the air comes into the lungs, the diaphragm pulls down to make the air come in. And as it does, it kind of pushes down onto the, um, water balloon to the you know abdominal area so everything kind of moves around that pressure gets transited down onto the to the fascia on top of the pelvis and pushes down onto the pelvic organs which are underneath the abdominal cavity the pelvic floor catches that like a trampoline it doesn't just let go and everything fall out it catches it like a trampoline then it pushes back up the abdominal a uh, uh, water balloon pushes up, the diaphragm pushes up, and the air comes out. So we have kind of this valve system that goes, and we have these various pressures 
you know, that, that are dependent upon the movement of different things to make that happen. So when you think about that, the pressures in the chest, I, I know this a little sounds a little engineering, but just stick with me. The pressures in the, in the thorax or the chest are negative, which means that if we expand the chest, the air flows in very easily. Okay, and then when the diaphragm pops up and the ribs kind of come in together, the air flows out very easily. So it has to kind of force it out a little bit, but it comes in very, very easily. And we're designed that way on purpose because if we don't breathe, we're not, you know, there's no, there's no point, right? Um, it's the most primal thing we do. So it's set up to be a super efficient, super easy system. And we want to, and the brain really wants us to be super efficient there because we shouldn't have to be thinking about breathing while we're, you know, uh, doing all of the wonderful anticipatory human things that we do walking on the earth. The, the abdomen itself is a, what we call kind of a low pressure organ. And it, it's not a negative pressure. It's a little bit more positive, but it's very low pressure. So we're talking, you know, one to seven millimeters of mercury. That's hardly anything. And that's probably generated more from just the fact that it's a, like a, you know, a water balloon than anything else. Um, we can increase the pressures around the abdomen by tightening up our tummy muscles, lifting our pelvic floor muscles, squeezing our back muscles a bit, turning our glutes on a little bit. All of those have connections in and around the whole system from the back to the front. And that's what they talk about, I think, when they're talking about core exercises, is those are the deep muscles that actually kind of govern and increase or decrease the intra-abdominal pressure during activities as we move. So I'm glad you brought up this idea of exercise because that's predominantly really where we're going for those right. who are thinking, why are we even talking about pressure? Um, because I think intra-abdominal pressure is often made out to be the big baddie. And so oh, we're yeah. going to talk a little bit about, you know, when is it good, when is it bad? Um, so did you have a question, Anthony, before we jump into that? No, no, keep going. He's you're, good. You're doing well. <laughs> He's good. So when do we want to increase uh, intra-abdominal pressure? So from a activity, sport kind of, um, point of view, when is it good to increase our intra-abdominal pressure? Right. So the, the research is really interesting on this, and there's been a little bit of a flurry of research that's come out lately, um, talking a little bit about what is intra-abdominal pressure changes with movement, and why do we have it? And if we're laying just like laying down and being restful, our postural control muscles should not really be working. We shouldn't need to, you know, to have muscles on and over recruiting while we're laying down and resting. That's the whole point of resting. But as we begin to move, we have to have variations of different pressure changes or else we wouldn't have any kind of um, tension or tensity to the bridge or the spine and the framework. So muscles pull on the bones to get us moving. And so with that, we have to move this 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 visceral sac around is part of who we are and it's how it you know it's how we eat and you know circulatory stuff and all kinds of things go on through there and so the um as we begin to move this visceral sac around we have to have some pressures to be able to do it because otherwise it's just flopping all over the place you know just kind of like you know just being thrown around and we we're not comfortable that way that doesn't look doesn't feel good and our body wasn't designed to work that way but what happens is, is that we begin to, depending on the task, we'll tighten up certain muscles or, or 
ask muscles to come on and play to bring some some oomph to the system so that we're a little bit more um, together as we move around. I hate to use the word stable because everybody likes to think that we have to have this kind of no super tension all the time and that's stability and uh, it kind of gets confused as to what really is so i just call it, let's keep it together right you know so if i'm getting up out of bed there's going to be a pressure increase in my abdomen in order for me to push up out of the bed i you know if independent how i get out of bed is going to depend on which muscles are going to have to come into play so if my baby is crying across the you know or screaming into the next room and i wake up out of a dead sleep i'm probably going to jackknife myself out of bed you know so and by jackknife i mean you know a big kind of almost like a sit-up with your legs straight you just kind of fly up out of the bed and um i need to have some good intra-abdominal pressure to balance that you know, crazy activity that's going to come on quickly to get me up. And then it's going to kind of mediate and go down and not be so hard because it doesn't need to like work like this as I'm walking, but it needed to do kind of a big push to launch me out of the bed. Does that make sense? Kind of the same thing like getting on and off the floor. Um, but as, we're, so as transitional movements have been shown now in the literature to be the things that really cause much more of an increased abdominal, intra-abdominal pressure. And that's not necessarily a bad thing um, because we have to have those pressures to move ourselves around. So we're kind of starting to look at it and say, all right, we know we have pressure changes with certain kinds of things, but do we need to have those intra-abdominal pressures for just sitting and working on the computer, for standing and walking and talking to a friend, even for standing and holding things and walking and moving things like that. And what the literature is starting to show is that the transitional movements, which are things like climbing stairs, getting out of chairs, getting off the floor, and coughing or sneezing um, tends to give us some of the bigger changes. And then when you add a Valsalva, and if everybody knows what that is, that's like a bearing down, you know, kind of thing that some people do when they're straining on the toilet, but some people do it just to move. You know, they have this big bear down to get out of a chair or a big bear down to get off the floor. And what we're finding in the research is that that really takes those higher pressures and really, you know, raises them up quite a bit. So it may not be that just because the pressure changes to get up and get out of a chair is a bad thing. But if you add a bearing down or a, a breath hold, like a strong breath hold, to be able to accomplish that task, then that's beginning to show us that perhaps maybe we don't have enough strength to do the activity, or we've kind of developed a bit of a pattern of breath holding to do the activity that can be changed pretty easily. Sounds so, a bit like tension to task, Anthony. Yeah, it's almost like if we teach this stuff, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting with the breath holding thing. Um, it, it's interesting that you raise it because, you know, uh, in, in the literature as well, some activities holding your breath doesn't actually have much difference at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what you said with, with the bearing down pressure is mm -hmm. so key. You know, it's it's the way that you hold your breath and bear down that seems to be the the thing and and yeah you know once people once people aren't strong enough they have to hold their breath to move their body around it just becomes difficult um 
Right. I think that what I've seen clinically is two things. You know, if somebody has what we call a forced production problem, in other words, they're just weak, their quads are a little bit weak, their glutes are a little bit weak, it's difficult for them to get out of the chair. They've become sedentary or they've gotten or they got sick, you know, something happened. And they have to develop, you know, it takes time to develop that strength back. That's not gonna you know, change just like this. So we have to give them better strategies. So we have people lean a little bit more further over. So it's a little easier to use the strength that they do have so that they're not bearing down so hard or maybe use the arms of the chair a little bit to help them. I think everybody's kind of familiar with that one time where they were sick for a few days and then they went to go get up and move around and they just couldn't realize how like they fell, you know, how, you know, how they felt. And, and and it took them days and sometimes weeks to feel better. We can lose a lot of strength really quick, illness and, and you know, bed rest. Um, but the, the other one that I see is, and, and I agree with you, Anthony, that the latest research by um, one of the, the people from, I believe it is in Salt Lake City, that is looking at this, um, didn't find a difference with breath holding, but breath holding in her population was self-reported. And one of the things that I that we talked about around that is people don't know they're holding their breath. So if you educate them and they can really be, you know, all in and mindful about it, it would be interesting to see what that would show. Um, you know, and it still may not show any difference. But again, if they really weren't, you know, the, the big, I think the, the thing we're trying to get here is that, you know, the really cutting off the breath, like, you know, and, and putting a lot of oomph behind it to do movements that humans should be able to do without holding their breath. And I think that's kind of the crux of it. So we want to kind of think about how can we get people, you know, because what I, the second thing that I see clinically is that when people are, they may be using that technique, but they have plenty of strength. And so how do we test it? Don't hold your breath and get up. <laughs> and oftentimes they can very easily. And it's like, okay, so this is an unnecessary addition of force into your system that you probably don't need. This other person over here who's weaker is going to have to modulate that for a bit till they get stronger. This person over here, if it changes that fast, it's not a strength problem. It's a strategy or a, you know, coordination, you know, thing. And so we can develop things to help them think about breath holding. You know, if they're, it, you know, oftentimes they'll say, oh, darn it, every time I get out of the chair, I am holding my breath, but I can't seem to make myself stop, you know, stop. So one of the strategies I use with people is to simply talk because you can't hold your breath and talk at the same time. You know, it's an exhale that makes the vocal cords vibrate. And so they can start talking as they get out of the chair. They can talk as they climb the stairs. There's something to that, you know, uh, uh, a story behind if you're running or walking, you should be able to converse with the person next to you. And that means that you're not working quite so, you know, working kind of at more of that moderate level for endurance. Um, I think a lot of that is that, you know, if you have to hold your breath to run, you're probably past the fatigue point. You know, yes, you're going to need to hold your breath or, or breathe differently, I should say, not hold your breath, but breathe differently if you're in a full out sprint, you know, and we don't train endurance in a full out sprint. We throw sprints into endurance training to, um, 
augmented and accented a little bit better. So you may be more winded when you're doing a full out sprint, but the regular, the regular stuff that you're doing, you should be able to kind of talk and converse a bit while you do it. And it's kind of a nice check-in for people to kind of figure out how hard am I really working? I'm, you know, hills are really hard for me. I feel really winded after a hill. Maybe I need to put some more hills in in between on my walk so that I can get better and get better endurance around those hills. Or every time I run, I just can't get my breath. So what is, you know, where, where's the holes in the train there that maybe we need to kind of help them so that they're not going from, you know, just a nice moderate work to like this really heavy work that isn't sustainable for them at that time. I'm just thinking of a client that I saw yesterday who had um, hysterectomy. She's quite young and then mm -hmm. developed prolapse and, she wanted to get back into lifting and she had a pessary fitted asymptomatic. Um, and it was so interesting just assessing her and just watching her breathe. And there was no movement of her tummy at all and no movement of her lower ribs. And she was just all breathing up here. Mm -hmm. And so just what you were saying before about people being aware of their breathing patterns, this is someone who's very fit and active, um, who's been lifting weights well prior to the, up to where she got the prolapse, but, um, very fit and active, very body aware in many ways. And she had no idea, no sensation that she did not breathe into her abdomen mm -hmm. and actually trying to change that. Because obviously for someone with prolapse, so in my mind, if we talk about some of those things that may be a consequence of too much pressure over a long period of time, in mm -hmm. my mind, I'm thinking hernias and prolapse, um, for example, uh, but yeah, trying to change that strategy and every, every weight that she lifted and she, this is a woman who can deadlift a hundred kilos. I was getting her to deadlift, you know, 20, 30 kilos and on mm -hmm. that breath hold every time. And she said, I've never done it any other way. I don't know how to lift it up. Like, mm -hmm. Well, if you're lifting your baby, who's five kilos or whatever, when, you know, Anthony talks a lot about this tension to task, but that's a high load strategy. We don't need a breath hold to lift something that's so far below your maximum. Would, would you agree? Right. I totally agree. And I will say that if somebody is lifting their one rep max, they're going to have to breath hold. Mm. <laughs> or it's not your one There's rep no max. Yeah. I mean, you just have to. It's, and, and, that's, and it's a protection strategy so that you don't blow your system out. You know, the muscles come in and everything, you know, is, it builds up the right tension. You know, Anthony calls it, Anthony calls it tension to task. Some other people call it task dependent. Um, but the idea is that you need to kind of be, your, your system should be able to grade how much oomph has to go into it. And if it is something like lifting the couch for a second to, you know, push the sweeper underneath it, there may be a breath hold for that. And we need to t help people develop that strategy appropriately. And, but lifting their baby, you know, if they can do that, then they shouldn't really need to be, having to use that big oomph and that big emphasis to lift things that are much lighter. Um, you know, so I totally agree that there are times when breath holding is, you know, breath holding or even kind of like now, no kind of going is important. One of the things that I, I this, you know, the story that you're telling, Marika, I love to hear because when we have abdominal surgery and we have C-sections as well as vaginal deliveries, um, I think people, forget that we've had an interruption into the pressure system at that point in time. Um, so the uterus, especially in somebody young, is not a small organ. 
it's not in postmenopausal women it is you know but in, in um you know people who have not gone through menopause young women it is a this is a major organ of the female abdomen and although it sits down below the abdominal the abdominal cavity they actually go through the abdominal cavity part ways with the uh, um, laparoscope as well as you know if they're doing a vaginal excision or if they're doing an abdominal one but they're, they're still poking holes in the abdomen to go down in and take a look at this and whenever you have that happen that's changing you know that changes the pressures it's like poking a hole in the water balloon Yes, it'll heal up, you know, but it, but oftentimes what happens is when you wake up from the surgery, your brain is like, I don't know what just happened down there, but we got to figure out a way to breathe. And so maybe in a protective way, the brain just says, don't move all of that area. Let that heal. Let's breathe a little bit more shallow. And it becomes a thing, right? We're, we're good at it. We can make it really efficient, really fast. It probably wasn't a wrong strategy in the beginning, but for whatever reason, the, other, the variance around that breathing pattern never returned. So she, this is somebody who probably could breathe, you know, and, and probably with a little bit of work can get that, you know, those patterns are in there. We just need to kick basic ganglia out of the chair again and have them pull up those maps so that they have you know that variant but i think in the beginning you know post having a baby and if it, all of you out there who have had children or know people who have that first week you know when they're talking and laughing it's very 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 shallow and very light and there's just no oom from the system underneath because in the case of having a baby you just pop the you, you really have popped the pressure balloon and everything goes whoomp and so now we have muscles that are long and tissues that are long because they were being stretched and pulled as we were growing the baby. And then it's suddenly, like suddenly, it's gone. And so the brain has to figure out a way to cope with that and still get you up on your feet so that you can go pick your baby up and feed your baby and, you know, do the things that you need to do. And so oftentimes we'll have a change in strategy. The diaphragm may work harder to hold us together. Um, we'll breathe a lot more shallow. We'll do different things in order to kind of protective to the system that just went through this event um, and, but still be able to function. And there was an interesting study that showed that post uh, C-section females had sudden higher increases of intra-abdominal pressure than their counterparts that were just having abdominal surgery. So that's very, very interesting to me because, you know, as we talk about, you know, C-section, even though it's the uterus, we're still, the pressure system is still being involved because, you know, everything is so big. But I think the reason that that happens is, you know, the, the, the whole changes in pregnancy and that whole tension system that's growing and growing and growing and getting stronger as, you know, because it's such a rapid event over nine months, when we pop that, you know, that there's such a sudden loss underneath that I think the diaphragm really works harder. We don't have any proof of this, but it makes sense to me, the strategies and the, you know, you know, really kind of changing your posture and, you know, holding that diaphragm as hard as you can and that shallow breathing really can drive that abdominal pressure up. And we would do that so that we could have um, the ability to get up and move and do the things that we need to do. There's also the idea of, um, you know, 
putting some supports on and things like that to kind of help mitigate that just a little bit so that the brain doesn't feel like everything has kind of fallen out. So I think in the beginning, following those kinds of things, it's a protective event, you know, because there has been, you know, it, I don't want to call it trauma, but there has been, you know, surgery, there's been an interruption, there's been, you know, some invasive stuff that has gone on and the brain knows that it needs to heal. But again, maybe, it, you know, it just never really changed. You know, we get busy. So we don't think about it. And you know, here's this person who's you know, very metorically sound, but hasn't really thought about, you know, what's happening with her breathing, you know, in the light of everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. So I find that kind of fascinating. The other yeah. thing that I see a lot, too, is I see a reversal of what their abdominal you know, system should be doing. So when we talk, when we laugh, when we scream, um, when we blow out hard to get up off, you know, to lift something really heavy, you know, everything should be kind of coming in together, you know, to create that pressure with the pelvic floor coming up underneath and being balanced by the, the vocal cords and the diaphragm. But what I often see is, is as people talk and laugh and cough and do things i see their muscles doing uh they, they there's a sudden outward motion of the muscles which means that the pressures aren't being developed and pushed up and that's the other reason for intra-abdominal pressure we need to have an exhale that's going to give us enough force to shake our vocal cords and allow us to talk or to you know push the air out as we're really sprinting and running from the tiger so you're wow. always listening right <laughs> when you're talking to your clients you're listening to their voice and what mm -hmm. what are you listening for are you listening for certain sounds in the way that they're you know even in your sort of conversation sure yeah besides watching their abdomen move in the wrong direction you know so when they cough everything pushes out instead of pulling in means they can't clear the airway. excuse me cannot clear their air airway efficiently wow i'm gonna have to put my my brain back on again um because all the pressures are going down and that's not helpful if you're already leaking or you know or you're having pain you know down in your pelvic floor you know when you get those constant pressures going the wrong way we want to reverse those and get them the right way so the the talking bringing that up kind of helps a little bit because what i look for is i look for their ability to um inflect like can they go up can they go down can they tell a story can they you know have those moments of accent and emphasis and things like that because that you have to be able to coordinate that system to do it i also listen to see how breathy their voice is and or maybe how craggly it is um, as we age there's some changes in our mucosal tissue and if we have this you know kind of craggling voice it kind of gives me a window in that wow there may be some you know mucosal changes down in the pelvic floor too because where the pelvic floor goes mucosally there goes the visceral system all the way through and so that can kind of be a window in if it's kind of breathy or if it's light you know that may be not enough oomph in the system vice versa if there's a lot of pain there may be you know kind of the strained you know you can hear the strain in their voice and hear the difficulty that they're having you know just kind of relaxing everything enough to allow those vocal cords to really you know vibrate appropriately so for our listeners mm -hmm. um who you know this this podcast is is for the general public mm -hmm. what should they be looking out for in their own voice in their own exercise in their own breathing what are some simple things 
that they can look for to see and, and things to do that can increase their variability in their in the way that they do their breathing, in the way that they can pay attention. And it's it's not to freak them out that they're doing no. the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, it's more to show them, hey, you know, this is a strategy, like you said, the brain has been using and we just mm-hmm. want to give you other strategies so that you can, you know, maybe take some pressure off other areas like your pelvic floor or any abdominal wounds that you might have from surgery. Um, what sort of um, specific examples or, or things can they pay attention to? So the first one with the breathing and talking, I just have them place their hands on their abdomen. And as they talk, like I have my hands on my abdomen right now, as they talk, they should be able to feel their abdomen coming in and kind of working with their breath, you know, to kind of bring that air up and out of the airway. What I want them to do is see if their, their fingers are going outward. And if they are, just think about bringing, you know, making some small noises to learn to retrain to bring the air in and up. So they can do things like um, making noises like uh, like a yip noise, like yip, 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 and put their hands and they can feel, you know, muscles kind of start to click in a little bit easier. That can, can be I very helpful. Even, yeah. Can I get even more simpler on you? Mm-hmm. And can you just tell us what, as they're going yip, what should be happening? Um, and so as they breathe in, what happens at their tummy? As they breathe out, what okay. happens at their tummy? Okay. So as they breathe in, their tummy should expand. As they breathe out, their tummy should come in. And so with the yips, as you breathe in, you'll feel your tummy come out. With the yip, you'll feel it pop in real fast. So it's kind of yip, 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 yip. And the more you raise your pitch, the more your pelvic floor has to come up to meet that which is kind of cool. So we don't want to yip, yip, yip down here. If we're trying to get like some oomph to the system, like we'll sneeze and hold, we want to like bring the pitch up just a little bit more into a kind of a high pitch, yip, 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 you know, because that helps bring the pelvic floor up, which is so easy. you mean my, my pelvic floor doesn't work so good when no. I go yip, yip, yip? <laughs> no, when, you, when you do that low yip, but you can do a higher yip. You know, just because your range, yeah, just because your range tends to be more alto or tenor, you still have a range in that, you know, because everybody's different. And that's why we have people who can sing soprano and people who can bass. But even the bass people have a higher pitch range to their voice. And that has to be recruited, you know, through their um, increasing some intra-abdominal pressure in the pelvic floor coming up to meet that. So you don't have to be Mariah Carey to, sorry, Marika, time differences. Um, you don't have to be Mariah Carey to 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 get that no. high yips. No, whatever's don't. high for you, right? Right, exactly. And some people, quite frankly, have lost those higher pitches, mainly because they're just not using them anymore, or it was a strategy that kind of got wiped out because of other reasons, and they never went back to it. Here's another thing you can do: once you kind of feel that and feel what happens when you talk and you feel it come in, turn on the radio and sing to your favorite songs sing out loud. And I was actually just going to ask, do you suggest our listeners, don't worry if you have rubbish. Um, there's no such thing as rubbish to a voice. There's, oh, rubbish, my there's husband no... is completely tone deaf, so I completely disagree with that statement. I didn't ask them to sing to each other. I asked them to sing with the radio. Sorry. 
So to our listeners, in the shower, <laughs> in the car, I drive my children nuts. I think at all home time. cooking dinner all in the bathroom the so when you're brushing your teeth. You know, I mean, their music can be everywhere. And it's a good pelvic floor training, right? It's wonderful. Besides that, music makes us move. Mm. Can't listen to music if it's your jams. Now it can't be my jams. It has to be your jams. What may, what does it for you? Because music makes us move. Even the soulful music, people kind of tend to sway. <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, they do. So, or the, you know, the heavy rock and you know all the stuff. You know, you jump around and do things. It's a great motivator for movement. It's absolutely fantastic. But mm. sing because the singing to the music not only is it reactive. You're anticipating a little bit if you know it, but you know, it's still, you have to kind of go with it. It's telling you where to go. You're not telling the music where to go. And that's really cool because that brings that reactive kind of process into the system and build that oomph that you want for, you know, just retraining that breathing. And the variance in the music makes you have to coordinate your system a little bit differently. So you don't have to think about, okay, five minutes of this kind of breathing, five minutes of this breathing, but just put the music on. Yeah, well, you get through a five-minute song pretty quick that way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot more fun. <laughs> if we can transition that to lifting, mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I get people to think about, you see, because lots of people think, I don't hold my breath when I exercise, but what I get them to do is actually sing a note. Yeah. And they can hear the pitch changes, which is their pressure modulation, right? That's mm -hmm. what you were saying before. Mm -hmm. um, at, at what point? do you think people need to start tightening up or, or even holding, cutting off and holding that breath? We, we alluded to it earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of people are holding their breath when they're, you know, picking up their baby or picking up a lightweight, only, you know, 30 kilos, um, which might, you know, 65 pounds. It might be heavy for some, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, uh, for a right. lot of our listeners, it won't be heavy. <laughs> okay. And that's, yeah, I mean, for, you know, unless there's something really strength-wise wrong, you pretty much, I think everybody pretty much knows what they can and can't lift. And when you know that you're lifting something really heavy, that is when, you know, you can, uh, you know, you have to begin to start to think about how am I going to get this heavy weight up? And that's where you really have to kind of start to use that breath hold to develop that pressure high enough to do that transitional movement of pushing the weight around. When it's not so heavy, you need to really kind of back off and, and allow yourself to breathe. If you can't feel yourself breathing, I love what Anthony said, which is, hum, say something, talk, talk while you lift, you know? And if you find that in, the, in oftentimes that can be very exposing to where your weak point is in the lift. And I've used this quite a bit for myself. So maybe I'm doing a press up, right and as i'm talking and i'm getting into the press up maybe right here i go uh, and then i go back to like regular talking and i can find wow what is it through here that you know maybe that's the part i need to work on to make that a much more smooth lift or i can increase my performance if i can get that part of the lift a little bit better so it can it can show some areas you know where, as you're moving through the motion of, of where you're, uh, where you're struggling. Where you're yeah, struggling we call it the sticking is. point. <laughs> yeah, sticking point, I actually call it the struggle point. Because yeah. it's a point where they're struggling a little bit. And, it's, and same thing getting out of a chair. 
you know, somebody could be healthy, wealthy, and wise and still struggle to get out of the chair. Why? You know, it's a pattern that got laid down for them. And now they just need to learn some new strategies to be able to break that and maybe work on that. Where's that struggle point? Is it because they're trying to Kegel to keep from leaking to get out of the chair? And that's causing a sudden change in their ability to lean forward and get up and use their muscles in a different way. You know, we, that just helps us kind of identify where in that movement pattern are people kind of having a little bit of trouble. So the final thing I think you were asking, Anthony, is about um, when do you want to start like holding the breath? One of the things that I like to do, and everybody can do this, this listening right now, it's so simple. It's take a deep breath in and then hold it. So you go. And just feel what happens in your body. And then do it this way, because there's, you can build some cool variances around that breath holding, which is really neat. Take, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a deep breath in. I'm going to start to let it out. Then I'm going to hold it. Okay, so it's going to look like. and then feel what happens. And a lot of people will really feel that they have a lot more oomph with that type of strategy versus just a lifting it up, filling your, air, your whole belly full of air. It's almost like blowing the balloon up as much as you can and just letting a little bit of air out till that balloon gets nice and, and then cutting it off. So sometimes that can allow that exhale that's on that big balloon can begin to recruit those muscles just a little bit harder and give you a little bit better intra-abdominal pressure boost for that lift. So that's kind of a fun thing to play around with too because it's a different strategy than most people have used. So it can help you kind of build some variance in around, okay, what's gonna be the best breath holding strategy for me to improve my performance? I think a lot of people, um, I mean, intra-abdominal pressure has been a pretty big topic of conversation I think for years a lot of people want to know you know which exercises produce the most pressure which ones are and lower pressure and I just want to hear your thoughts on this and Anthony I know you've been chatting to some of your colleagues in, in Salt Lake City as well recently and um, do you want to just go through a little bit about what the what we know from the research as to maybe whether it's about the type of exercise or maybe it's more about how we do it. So um, if we're gonna go strictly off what we know from the literature, um, sit-ups do not cause the intra-abdominal pressure change that everybody used to think they did. So I can just put that right out there. Um, and a lot of people are like, you know, always are coming at me like this when I say things like that. But what we know that does the biggest increases of intra-abdominal pressure are transitional movements and transitional movements with a balsalva or a, you know, a huge bearing down type of motion. And stairs are one of those things as well. So bearing down while you're going up and down stairs is a problem. Um, and, you know, that's some of the latest research that's come out. And quite a bit of, of a difference between things like uh, sit-ups and uh, some of the other exercises that people don't like and this group of exercises over here. And what the interesting thing is, is that the thing we warn people off of really aren't increasing their intra-abdominal pressure nearly as much as the things they're doing all the time. You know, because people are going to get out of chairs. People are going to go up and down stairs. And the strategies that they're using may not be the most effective for really controlling those pressures. In other words, they're working too hard. 
they, they don't need to work. So, we want people to not work so hard with those types of human movements that they should be able to do pretty easy. Um, the other one that the, the other latest study that's come out is looking at carrying and they looked at back carry and front carry and side carry and awkward carry, which is like the car seat way over here, right? And, um, or, you know, uh, you know, a combination of the carry. So side carry, front carry, and awkward carry all at the same time. And the more that you move, you know, and we know this physically, physics-wise anyway, the more you move objects away from your body, the harder you have to work. So the closer things are into you is better, the further away it's harder. But our new moms are walking around carrying car seats away from their body and the car seat weighs a good bit of weight and so does the baby and these these are realities so what we need to do is figure out you know so rather than worrying about setups i'm more interested in worrying about how are you mitigating and mediating you know this everyday activity that you're doing and you know how is that driving your symptoms are you leaking when you're doing it are you having pain when you do it you know, are you struggling with this? What, what's happening here? That, to me, seems to be more important than worrying about if they're going to go to the gym and do some exercises. I think if we ask them to kind of scale their exercise and, you know, be able to kind of work their way up slowly, they should be fine. If they have known prolapse, like you already talked about, Marika, and they need to probably do something, you know, to protect that a little bit. It's like putting an orthotic in your shoe. And the pessary just kind of helps you know, uh, take up some space where the, the tissue, not the muscles, the tissues can't hold anymore. And that just kind of protects that area so that, because the pelvic floor still works around that pessary very, very nicely. And so we just want to bring those in and make sure that they're not breath holding or bearing down as they're doing those exercises, that they're actually able to, so if they can't do a full sit-up, they can do an angled sit-up, you know, and begin to bring you know, the, the system on in a way that it can cope with it and then they can move that angle back as they go. Yeah, there's um some really interesting, there's some really interesting stuff out of that Salt Lake City group. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I got to see some pressure traces and it's, what's really interesting is that a lot of the pressure that's developed is actually before the work is done. Yeah. It's just mm -hmm. before lifting and then uh, I'm I'm pretty sure. So you're you're referring to Yvonne Hughes work, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, with the rest of the group um, in 2018. It was published, and um, I, I'm pretty sure that one of the conclusions in that paper was that carrying for 10 seconds less only drops the pressure by three centimeters of water, which is negligible, you know. And um, we know from lots of other research as well that. Uh, that, you know, for example, most Pilates exercises, 11 mat exercises and 11 reformer exercises were done and all of them pretty much came in under what getting mm -hmm. up out of a chair involved. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, lo lots of, the, um, <laughs> lots of the, the myths that were around exercise. Like you say, you know, like it's, it's much better that we look at what people do. I've said it for years and years and years. Um, you know, I, I like to teach women how to lift up 35 pounds, 15 kilos, mm -hmm. right off the bat, right after mm -hmm. pregnancy, because that's what they've got to do to put a pram in the car. They're already doing it. You know, yep. you, you might as well learn how to do it differently. Um, mm -hmm. So much stuff. I love all the pressure stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it is. It's fun and it's so enlightening to see that, that, that because to me, the, 
people who are doing these one rep maxes in their life, I mean, they're not lifting their couch every day sweeping. They're not. If they are, they're a very skewed population. But, you know, people go to the gym, they go to the gym three hours a week, maybe four. That's, we're talking about 24 hours a day, you know, of activities that could be driving that system a lot differently than doing some exercises at the gym for 30 minutes or like Anthony was saying, but on, on the Pilates, on the reformer and the Cadillac and that kind of thing. There's, and that, those are absolutely essential, but I think it's the stuff we do every day, all day is where we get into a little bit of difficulty because our brain sets up patterns so that we can do these things all day, every day, not have to think about them. And so sometimes we need to have different ways to do it so that we can store that we're, you know, we're not driving symptoms. So when somebody tells me every time I get out of a chair, I leak, then that's that there needs to be some new strategies on getting out of the chair. And it may not be that their pelvic floor is weak. It just may be they're generating such pressure to get out of the chair that their pelvic floor can't overcome that. <laughs> so, you know, so we can, we can kind of look at it from both ways. It's not so much that we just need to strengthen the pelvic floor. That's good to do. But if they still are using that really solid bearing down strategy every time they get up, they're, you know, that's not, and they have symptoms, that's not going to be a good strategy for them. We want them to develop some variants on this so that they can get out of the chair and not leak. This is a, um, a question without notice and um, just something that I just wondered now. You, you've mentioned, um, you've mentioned, you know, using singing to help the timing and coordination of breathing and we, and we know the pelvic floor works with that. Um, we know from the research that uh, running, for example, in people with pelvic floor dysfunction can, can have greater contraction ability than what they can think about squeezing as hard as they can. Is there any research on things like singing and using um, anything like that? Have they looked at that yet um, to, I, for pelvic floor I, activity? Yeah, that I know of. The last time I looked, I couldn't really find anything. Most of the information that I've been able to dig up um, on, on using the voice and using singing and using even that for, for uh, changing strategies around people's stress responses has all come out of the um, performing arts literature and the uh, Alexander technique literature. They use a lot of this stuff. And, you know, people will use breath and stuff to get them like hyped up to get ready to get on stage. It's like the sprinter who uses, the, you know, they kind of make noises and they, you know, use all kinds of things and forward head and panting and stuff to, you know, drive that system up because they're fixing to jump out of the blocks, you know, on a big sprint. Or they can, you know, use it to calm things down. And oftentimes they'll use lower tones to kind of like, uh, you know, to begin to settle and get the deep vibration in, you know, to bring the system down a little bit. That reminds me of giving uh, birth, actually. You know, so, but I haven't seen anything that talks about, you know, adding that on to running. Now, that doesn't mean it's not out there. I just haven't found it yet. So, so on that, um, just for our listeners, you're, you're talking about the autonomic system, the sympathetic mm -hmm. system and the parasympathetic system. Mm -hmm. The In, flight or fight. Yeah. Or yeah. the fight or take flight. care of yourself and long-term survival. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in what ways might they notice that? Um, you, you talked about being really revved up. If they're sitting down to relax on the couch and they're still stressed out, what are some of the ways that 
that they can use the breath work and 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 this pressure mm -hmm. work that you're talking about to help uh, with those things that they might notice. So what might they notice and what can they do about it? So what they might notice is that even though they're like trying to relax, their, their heart rate may be kind of still, you know, up there, you know, they may be more aware that, you know, it just feels like that they just can't get a nice, good, deep breath. That one that you look for that's kind of like that, you know, that I'm going to exaggerate it, but that's actually what that is, that letting go. And so you can do that with a couple of things. You can do kind of a nice little long exhale. So... Susan's still breathing out, by the way, yeah, for those listening. Out. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that's happening. Or what's really cool is using hum. And I'll just have people not go to a lower pitch right away, but just put their hands on their chest. And if they can't feel it on their chest, put it just kind of like right on their neck easily. And just give yourself a hum. And feel the vibration. Pay attention to the vibration, not the sound, the vibration. And then practice bringing that hum, that vibration down. So come down to the lower ribs. See if you can get that vibration in there. Down onto the abdomen. And then take it down a notch. And what they'll notice is just keep doing that they'll get that vibration lower and lower. And when you start getting that vibration lower and lower, it means that you're not holding all of those deep muscles in a readiness to, to act, that they're letting go because it's now time to do a readiness to, to rest. It, um, it almost reminds me of the Wolf of Wall Street and where Matthew McConaughey's, he, he was doing his breathing warm-up exercises and mm -hmm. the director saw him. He was doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, you've got to do that in the movie. And, and so he, that's <laughs> how that scene came about. But, you know, he was doing breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. and, um, exactly. You know, singing teachers have got lots of breathing exercises that you can do yep. and, and humming and singing exercises. I, I know just how stressed I am on a course based on the pitch that I'm speaking at when I'm teaching, you know. Mm -hmm. And this past weekend, I, the past two weekends, I've been pitched right up there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's sometimes it's a deliberate conscious effort, like you're saying, to, mm -hmm. to let that go and um, get down deeper. Right. You can speak like Barry right. White. And, tunes. You know, the difference between teaching to a group, Anthony, and, a, and, and talking like this, I mean, um, is, is profound. Because when you're, when you're in the middle of a group, you know, you're performing. And performance requires a different set of circumstances. You know, it requires you to be on, it requires you to be up, it requires you to be focused. So you're going to have some of that stuff going because your brain needs to be sharp and you need to, you know, be able to dive right in and pick things out and, you know, keep things going and, and keep the rhythm up and, and the whole thing. And it's exhausting. You know, there's no question that at the end of that, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, you're just like wiped, <laughs> um, which is, you know, which is what performers go through. People who... Um, run sales meetings you know I've done this with a number of lawyers that I treat with that have come to me with pelvic pain and you know some of their pain really gets driven before certain meetings none of them in court they are all just meet amongst their peers and you know I, I get you know they work on this performance 
what you, you know, kind of find, you know, we play with a lot of different things, find the things that, you know, strum your central nervous system and bring yourself to not down so low that you can't perform, but to get you out of that wind up so that you actually can talk without a strain and, you know, and, and your pelvic floor being pulled in and, and, you know, work overworking too hard. And, you know, so there's a lot, you know, there's, there's a lot that this can happen with. I mean, some people, it may just be, you know, talking to their kid's teacher is stressful enough. <laughs> being able to, to get a little mindful before you go into a stressful meeting can be helpful. Because those are the things, again, that's that whole deal, that those are the things in everyday life that we face that we don't look at because we're so busy looking at what exercise should I do over here? <laughs> and to me, it's like, if we can mitigate all of this and get variance and change and all of this stuff, this stuff is fine. This is going to make you stronger and healthier and, you know, get you out of your patterns over here. And it all works together better. But I think it's the stuff we do every day that drives that system a whole lot more than, you know, the single pockets of exercises over here. I, I had a question, Marika, if you don't mind. Go ahead. We're talking about pressure. Mm -hmm. We're talking about abdomens. Mm -hmm. Diastasis is so hot right now. <laughs> so I'm going to ask it. <laughs> oh, you were going to ask it, Lee? No, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask something about diastasis, but go ahead. Well, my question is, how does this apply to diastasis? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does, because what you have to look at with diastasis is that you have to think about how is that system able to recruit and what is happening, and because if we are recruiting in a way that's causing a, I think everybody knows doming, is that correct with your group, Marika, that you speak to? So if the, if the stomach is pushing up and out when we do something, then that's probably not the most optimal strategy. If it happens every once in a while, I don't freak out about it, but I don't want it to be a strategy that they use all the time. So one of the things that's coming out about diastasis is not so much do we close the gap but can we make that system can we bring tension into that system because as i talked about as the muscles of the abdomen work they actually pull on that connective tissue or that thing in the middle we call the linea alba which is just it's just a big thick piece of of, of connective tissue that you know can get pulled side to side as different muscles are recruiting and since we're working on the water balloon what we don't want to do is do a recruitment so much that we're grabbing and pulling but the water balloon is being pushed out we want to be able to develop the pressure with the stuff that's actually going to just tense the whole water balloon and get and so the, the water balloon actually on the front is going to be full you know is going to be bringing this you know bringing the tension in a little bit and um, so that's a lot of the work by Diane Lee and some of the stuff she's done with Paul Hodges um, in, in the literature out there. And so everyone is, you know, kind of the whole idea, be, everyone is up in the air about what to do about diastasis. And I think that we just, when we look at normal muscle physiology and we look at um, the way that tissue heals and the way that tissue changes, I think that's going to drive the way that we're going to pay attention to this a little bit better. And I think everybody wants to have this inverted belly. And we're, you know, we should never have inverted bellies. It should never be that way. But what we want to have are strong bellies. And that means that we want to be able to use the muscles to develop the right tensions in the body to give us the up and out exhale, the up and out cough, the up and out the, the, the right tensions for lifting and holding us together.
And I don't know if that was what you were looking for. Did, do I need to speak to something more specifically? No, I, I'm happy with, with what you've said. I think it's entirely consistent with what both Marika and I teach. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to, to control that pressure. Yeah. Important. The also to be able to generate pressure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because sometimes that the, the integrity of that linear alba is so poor. It's like this loose bit of elastic that, mm -hmm. you know, you can't generate, you can't generate the intradominal abdominal pressure. So there's just that inability to create force. Yeah. Right. And that right. The surgery can be incredibly useful. Right. So there, there are always going to be cases of pelvic floor issues that do not belong with the physical therapist. And some people are going to need surgical solutions. Same with prolapse. You know, they're not going to do anything about prolapse until you're through having children. They're just not. So, you know, but not, we're not fixed for everything, but what we can do is help the system get itself together a little bit better. And, and some people may have an abdominal wall for after pregnancy that just isn't going to recover and be able to generate the forces like you were speaking of, Rika. And that doesn't mean it's everybody, you know, but those, you know, the people who fall into that category are going to need, you know, something else. They're going to need maybe a surgical solution, you know, support, something else, you know, that that's because they're just not going to be able to get that piece back without it. And just, just, and just to put it in perspective for the mm -hmm. people listening, sort of, I've been physio for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. 20 years. I think I've, I've probably seen three abdominoplasties in that time. Mm -hmm. In recent years, I'm doing, I'm seeing a lot more people with diastasis because I get referred a lot more and mm -hmm. I probably have two at the moment who I think are heading down the route. So like you say, it's, it's not that common. Like it's right. the vast majority of people do very well with conservative mm -hmm. management. So, so even though I spoke about surgery, yes, it's not something that we, we push towards very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I had something very interesting and I know Marika doesn't forget about them, but martial artists, in, in the conversations amongst therapists around the world, I don't see enough discussion on female martial artists and how pressure generation, like they need to accelerate hard, hit hard and recover hard because otherwise you're going to get knocked out, um, be it kicking or punching or grappling. Um, do you have any words of wisdom for, for any of our clients that enjoy either a boxer size class, <laughs> Brazilian jiu-jitsu, taekwondo, uh, karate, any, you know, kickboxing, any of those sorts of uh, martial arts? Are you about ones where there actually, there's some impact, Anthony? Like there's actually some sparring? Because that's quite different, I think. Yeah. 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 So bag, bag work and sparring where you're going to make physical contact or you need to mm -hmm. brace for, a, for an impact is... Right. So there's the, from, from what I understand it, I have not worked with a lot of martial artists, but I, I love watching them because wow, it's amazing. Um, but I think that the, when you think about that, one of the things when you watch the really powerful or, or advanced martial artists do their craft is pay attention, listen to them because there is, there's breaths, there's breath holds, there's vocalizations that they used. There's high pitch vocalizations that they use. There's low pitch vocalizations that they, that they use. And it's, it's amazing. Cause when you, you know, just to, you know, like, I guess the person who does the karate that can go through and, and bust, you know, a number of boards, 
listen to the sound that they develop and generate right as they go. Um, it's, you know, that's part of the, the, I think their modulation of their system. And because they have to recover fast, there's, you can hear also the drop. So you can hear all of these different kinds of things. People get lost in, in watching the movement and the sharpness and stuff and don't pay attention to the underlying stuff. And it's fascinating. One of the things too about martial artists is, is like you were talking about, Anthony, is the acceleration in the hit, but the also, it's, it's also the, there's the other end of it is every, you know, kind of the law of, you know, um, you know for every action, an equal and opposite reaction. And they, you know, so when you hit that hard or have that high acceleration, you have to have a deceleration. And so many of them spend hours and hours and hours learning the decelerating part, learning how to use the floor to fall, learning how to, you know, to, you know, to generate the force as they fall to come back, you know, to come from it so that there's this kind of, you know, kind of movement that goes forward and back and forward and back and back and forward and back and forward, you know, so that they've got that you know, that, that type of acceleration, deceleration, and using the environment around that, including their opponent, you know, to, um, to, to generate those forces. And so some of the things that they learn as to how to, as the kick is coming, is how to actually let themselves go so that they absorb the kick and not become the object that's being kicked. And that takes the speed and the direction out of the kick right in the intensity so they you know so that there's a lot of that goes on and there's a lot of vocalizations and a lot of mouth and 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 stuff if you go by any kind of the um there's a when i teach a class over at the local municipal center there's a karate kid you know group that goes on in there and you you know they're there because everything is whoo, ho, whoo, 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 whoo. you know they're doing all of that kind of stuff and it's all vocal and I just love it. It's just like, wow, this is like, and for them and their culture, that is like, that's that primal piece, you know, and I think it's just it's amazing. So, I mean, that would be how I would talk about that. If I had somebody in, it would be interesting to kind of see where or what the issue was or the problem was, you know, would it be in the acceleration or the deceleration phase? So, what I've noticed. What the, um, what their strategy would be. I'm just thinking like when I first started martial arts, which is quite a few years ago, uh, when I was about 19, it's about five years ago. So uh, <laughs> a little while ago, but it, the old style um, taekwondo was very rigid. Every mm -hmm. movement was um, just rigid. It was the same speed throughout. Um, there was a lot of tension all the time. I remember feeling sore for years, like just my body was sore all the time. That has evolved. So this is within the Taekwondo that I do, which is an ITF, the original style. There is now a relaxation and then an acceleration. Mm -hmm. And obviously we, we exhale sharply with every movement. But it's amazing the difference that you feel to your joints, to your muscles, to everything is very much, and we're training people to relax, let go, so mm -hmm. soften, have a backward motion and then accelerate mm -hmm. and exhale through that through that movement which i think is just you know probably a lot better for long-term health and longevity uh, of our joints as well mm -hmm. right right and it's it's um my, one of my nephews is doing um uh, a piece of kung fu and a lot of it is really what he's really learning he was talking to me about it is they use a lot of low humming and um they spend a lot of time working on a lot of elongation um, and it's not just 
like increasing, you know, like we think about with a hamstring stretch, it's about literally decompressing their joints and getting the most out of every kind of movement and hold that they do. Um, opposite from the, you know, kind of pulling in and using strength. They use that too, but the emphasis that they're working on is that other part of it that, you know, gives them that tension that they'll have to it almost like creating the recoil before they need it you know so like you like you talk about that that kind of letting go before you go you know so i think that's kind of creating that you know almost you know those spindles you know to like really be able to respond so much more efficiently in the muscles so all interesting stuff but i mean it's no different than you know wonderful um ballet dancers who actually use ground force reactions of the floor to launch them into the air and the strategies that they use are not those perfect ballet strategies you know um and the, the men who turn you know th that do the, the multiple turns in the women you know there's all this talk in ballet you know your arms have to be here and you close and open and close when they're doing that they are not they are using they're using their eyes they're using the spin strategy they're using all kinds of different things and momentum and control but they're using the floor every time you know to be able to to launch them as they come around for each turn and so it's you know it's all of those kinds of things that you can see in everyday life just like it is when you lean over and pick up your baby maybe what we need to teach people is that let go and then get your baby and come up <laughs> rather than tense 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 and grab <laughs> and i know anthony you teach that actually in weightlifting piece you know getting there and really kind of breathing and getting you know things going before you actually do the lift. There's a lot of, of emphasis that you put on that whole preparation piece, you know, and, and you know, rather than the, the lift itself, which I think is, is wonderful. It's amazing because it does, it's a game changer. So I love it. Yeah, I was just born out of being frustrated watching people do things. I call mm -hmm. it putting the handbrake on a Ferrari, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, why are you slowing yourself down? <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic. But, you know, a lot of all of these things, you know, and if you listen to powerlifters, you know, I used to, I didn't know any better a long time ago. And I used to think that, you know, it was just such a guy thing, you know, to like yell and scream in the gym. And I mean, if you're going to be getting anywhere close to your one rep max is, you're, you know, at some point, you can hold your breath for so long and you can lift it. And at some point, you know, as you get ready to toss the weight down or do whatever it is you're going to do, there's a scream that comes. You have to, you got to let that pressure out somehow. And it's not going to come out as a, ah, uh, I mean, you know, it's going to, ah, you know, and, and when you watch, you know, Olympic weightlifters, oh my God, the yelling that goes on, it's crazy, but it's powerful and it helps them mitigate their pressures. You know, they don't have it when they're lifting, you know, when they're trying to do their, their best performance ever like they have to be the guy that just that just lifted beyond them so they've got that one time in them and you know then there's that tremendous stuff that goes on afterwards when they finally break that you know that whole thing that they developed just to get that weight up you know you watch their whole body reverberate and the, you know and the scream and the whole thing that happens and it's that's that's an appropriate response to that kind of to that kind of thing so susan you're you're a crossfitter right Sorry. I have I have been a CrossFitter. I still lift. Um, my CrossFit gym, unfortunately, has canceled their morning 
sessions. They're only having oh. evening sessions, and that is absolutely the worst time for me. So um, I'm doing some Pilates now and some uh, lifting. And, and you're doing some singing as you do your and But I have, you know, there's some apps for H-I-I-T, so I still follow those, and I can do my own high-intensity kinds of things because I get the most out of that and some of the lifting that I did from anything else. So it gives me enough variance because I just – the app comes up and it tells me this is what today's thing is and so I just I don't go I don't want to do that I just okay just sort it out and figure it out and let's let's get through it so some things are good and some things are bad I'm hoping to find another um I'm I'm hoping to find another gem but Gary sold his gem Anthony oh so, okay yeah okay. and then they immediately took away the times that were the best times for me <laughs> oh, that's, that's, a shame. And, that's such a shame i know it is a shame but you know it would maybe it was a little time to move on and do some new things and keep looking for the place i want to go which it's okay it's good you can always go visit anna down the road mm -hmm. yep <laughs> always Beautiful. and that's where Chris, that's where Kristen is now oh i know i know i'll be yeah. i'll be helping anna very soon in the next week or so at the games. Yep. So I'll probably run into Christian at some stage too. I don't know if he's gone or not. Don't know. Beautiful. Okay. Anything else? I think uh, we're, I think we're good. I think we're good. I like, I mean, there's lots <laughs> that I would love to talk about, but you know, so obviously. Obviously. for hours. <laughs> oh, I could, I could do this for hours too. It's so much fun to nerd out. I love um, it. Do, do you want to let people know where they can find you? And mm -hmm. you, you also have a podcast. So I do, you know, give that a plug. I do. Too. So I'm, I'm, as you said, I'm located in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm actually in the suburbs. Um, my website is www.embody, E-M-B-O-D-Y dash PT.com. Um, that's where my courses, our client resources, and all of that good stuff, my blogs are located. Um, I do have a podcast. It's um, called Tough to Treat. And it's with my co-host, Erica Mello, out of New York City. And we talk about complex cases and um, that of, of people that come right into our office and they, you know, they are people just like everyday people that have had, you know, things that have happened to them and how we figure out another way to get them out of it. And it's fun. We have a good time discussing the cases and, and sorting through our information and challenging our confirmational biases all the time. So trying to do things a different way, even on the podcast. And so we have a lot of fun with it. Um, and I've been on various vlogs and podcasts and things as a guest so you're a very popular lady <laughs> <laughs> there's actually a podcast coming out too in uh, August I can't remember if it was postpartum pelvic pain or pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy um, that I did with Karen let's see so that's coming out soon too so yeah it's been fun thank you this has been an honor I love 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 talking with you all Thank you so much for coming to chat to us. Mm -hmm. um, so should we sign it off for today and just say thank you everyone for listening. Sounds and, good. And we will be back in your ears very soon. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to hit like if you enjoyed this episode and leave any comments or questions below because we'd really love to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified of when we release a new episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.